again, the more challenging bit, in my opinion, is that human capital element. How do you work with so many different personalities, so many different groups, each of which have a different goal at the company? Bringing those people together and almost kind of project managing everything so that things get done. From the prediction that everything will eventually become a super app, we travel today to the West Coast where it's becoming increasingly clear that enterprise tech is dominating venture capital, where every company is becoming a software company. From retailers to established financial institutions and even health providers, the underlying technology has enabled everything from payments to CRM, information management, and so much more. Enterprise technology companies attracted $30 billion in funding loss, outpacing their consumer tech peers for the first time in five years. This trend reflects a deeper evolution at play. At the intersection of software development, adoption of cloud, and data analysis, and as many investors have said, we're still at the early stages of this massive sea change. But how do we arrive at this inflection point and what next? In comes my next guest, Kathy Gao, partner at Sapphire Ventures, a leading venture capital firm with more than $6.8 billion in assets under management across the Sapphire Group. For nearly two decades, Sapphire has been investing capital, resources, and expertise in innovative startups and technology-focused venture funds around the world. As a daughter of a software engineer and a small business owner, Kathy has been steeped in technology and entrepreneurship from an early age, and no surprise, today Kathy focuses on B2B SaaS, digital healthcare, and data businesses. Kathy led the firm's investment in and sits on the board of SafeGraph, is a board observer at Metabol UJet and Splashdrop, and prior to Sapphire, Kathy has had a tremendous track record being an investor at Axa Venture Partners, and also spending time at Desto shortly after their Series B and watched the company scale from less than 200 to 400 employees rebrand and launch two new products. You don't want to miss this. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top US and Asia founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact and returns, to scaling a venture capital firm, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. Before we hop in here, I've got a quick favor to ask you. Smash the follow button wherever you're tuning into this episode. This way, you'll be the first to know about new episodes that drop. And of course, please tell your friends, colleagues, business partners, so we can amplify more stories built on grit in the US and Asia venture intersection and that we can all keep making billion dollar moves together. Now let's get started. Kathy, how are you today? Hi, I'm doing so well, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so glad to have you. Well, daughter of a software engineer and a small business owner, it seems like um, your passions has preceded you. I really want to understand, you know, where you're your passion for technology first started. I mean, you've had such a track record from being, uh, you know, in the finance side of things with TA Associates and beyond, and then going on to Gusto. Uh, but what I want to find out is what was it in you that um, brought you to where you are today? You know, Sarah, that's really interesting because um, a lot of people ask me, you know, why did you go into finance? Why did you go to a startup? Why are you in venture capital? And when I think back on it, um, yeah, my parents were actually both software engineers and they were also small business owners. So grew up with computer science books everywhere, grew up 
um, really thinking about business concepts. But for some reason, when I was younger, none of that was exciting to me. I didn't, you know, I didn't like really feel that pull when I was a kid. And I always like to joke that my way of rebelling was not to go into engineering and not to go into entrepreneurship or, or startups because I wanted to do something completely different. And um, I also wanted to live in a city. So that's kind of how I got to Philadelphia. I went to the University of Pennsylvania and studied at the Wharton School. And that's where I kind of dipped my toe into more traditional finance. And people are going to make fun of me for saying this, but I still remember taking my first finance 101 class where they teach you about the time value of money. And I was like mind blown. And it sounds so nerdy and I'm going to get crap for this, but it was a concept that is so important to our everyday kind of business life that I had never, never thought about, never knew about. So that was like the world that, I didn't know existed. And I finally got a peak while I was in college. And that led to my first job out of school, which was at Blackstone in New York City. And I still remember just graduated college, just turned 21. And here I was, a girl from a suburb in Houston, who didn't grow up with very much, all of a sudden felt like I was on top of the world working in this massive skyscraper in Manhattan. Um, and you know, of course I was an analyst there and I was not doing any of the glamorous work, but I was getting to be in conversations with CEOs, with executives of large public companies working on multi-billion dollar M&A transactions. Mm -hmm. Again, none of the sexy work, but that glimpse into how business runs in the U S and in the world was addictive. It was like, wow, like this is, again, that entirely new world that um, I never got a peek at, didn't even know what investment banking was before I went to college. And so that kind of got me hooked, right? I thought finance and, you know, business was really, really interesting. But I had this idea that I would love to work with growth companies, right? And be an investor. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, back then, like most people at that age, I didn't really know what that meant. But someone told me about, hey, have you heard about this thing called growth equity? I was like, okay, it sounds like you're investing in growth companies. I'm definitely intrigued. And that's how I joined TA. TA is one of the, if not the oldest growth equity firms. It's based in Boston. So I went from New York to Boston and I worked at TA Associates for three years, which was a fantastic experience. Um, We were kind of traditional growth equity, also did some traditional LBO, private equity style deals. But it was an amazing place to really understand what investing is and how investors should think. Um, So I really loved my time there. But at a certain point in time, I remember this is when AWS was starting to blow up. Everyone was talking about the cloud. Everyone was talking about SaaS. And that's when I went back and thought, oh my gosh, technology. I mean, this is like software is eating the world. And I was like, why am I out of it? My parents are engineers. They, they were coding when I was, you know, very small. And the itch came back. I was like, I, I want to learn more about technology. I want to understand software. Um, and so I made the decision to move from Boston and 
and um, moved to San Francisco because where better to learn about technology and startups than Silicon Valley? And uh, landed at a great company called Gusto. Back then it was called Zen Payroll. And yeah, it was called Zen Payroll. And I heard about it because a really good friend of mine from college, he was the only person I knew who was working in venture capital or startup for that matter. And he had made a small angel investment in Zen Payroll. And he said, Kathy, I know payroll doesn't sound very sexy, but (laughs) trust me, this company is going places and I think you should talk to them. Right. And so, yeah, so I did. I did. And um, luckily, they gave me an offer to join them uh, shortly after the Series B. Mm-hmm. And that, again, was something completely new, right? Um, the learning curve was very steep. There were so many elements, not just the actual work itself, but interacting with different groups at a company, groups, sales, marketing, engineering, finance, they all have very different goals. And bridging that gap, bringing that cross-functional work together takes people skills, right? It takes people skills, but also knowing how to work together. And it was so much fun. When I joined Zen Payroll, I think the average age of employee was 26 or 27. Wow. I couldn't believe that, you know, a group of 20-somethings was building this fantastic payroll and then later benefits in HR and now... Uh, kind of modern banking for small businesses all over the country. I mean, that was just thrilling to me. Um, yeah, so Kathy, before you go into the next stage here, I'm curious, you know, you you mentioned a few things. First was the choice to um, go deeper in growth uh, versus, you know, early stages. W- why that choice? I mean, a lot of uh, investors tuning in here. And, and as we know, there's been an explosion of so many funds in the last couple of years, many who are where, who are, um, you know, early stages, you know, looking into the seed and things like that and may not have had uh, the opportunity to think about growth stage investing the way that you did. Was that a very, uh, part, was that a particular strategy that you thought, this is where the market's going to be going? This is what I want to continue to do versus the early stages of maybe even pre-product market fit and things like that. How did you make that uh, decision? Sarah, I got to be honest with you. Back then, this was back in uh, 2011, I didn't even know venture capital was potentially a career choice for me. I didn't even consider it because I don't know if it was just me or my network or being on the East Coast. It just didn't seem like an option for me. In my mind, in order to be a venture capitalist, you had to have already built and sold or IPO'd a company. That was my mind. So growth, growth equity was a way of being able to invest in companies that were growing versus kind of a traditional LBO. And that's that's the real reason why. Right. And then you made another uh, particular decision in your life, which is to join a startup. So from the usual, and, and we've actually seen a lot of this, especially in Asia, uh, there's a group called Rocket Internet, if you've yeah. heard of them where what they've done is essentially hire the smartest MBAs, right? Or former investment bankers, McKinsey's. I mean, it's, it's a particular type of profile uh, to then go and run these companies. And they know, uh, the Rocket Internet folks know that these people have been used to the long hours and are probably going to be able to hustle through, especially when you're starting out. What was it for you in transitioning to a startup? 
I'll tell you why, and then I'll tell you how it actually went, right? The reason why I did it is I think like many people who have only worked in finance, you have this itch that you always wonder, what is it like working at a company? Well, I like being an operator and it seems extremely exciting. You know, today, especially you can read on TechCrunch and all these other publications about how exciting these companies are. And for me, I was really trying to find the career that I was meant to do, right? Mm -hmm. And in many ways, it's a process of elimination. And for me, I always wanted to know, would I love working at a company? Would that be the type of role where my personality and my skill set could really shine? And I had to answer that question. And that was a perfect time in my life to do it. So that's why I made the jump. And I'm so glad I did it because it really gave me a lot of perspective. It gave me kind of a peek behind the curtain at what actually happens at a company when you're scaling that quickly, right? The, you know, people say the triple, 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 double, 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 what really happens behind the curtain? So I got to peek behind that, which I really loved. And the actual transition itself, I'm not going to lie, was very challenging for me, right? Mm-hmm. On one hand, the actual work was all new. I remember starting at Gusto my first month, and I feel like there were acronyms thrown at me everywhere, SDR, AE, um, BDR. And I was like, oh my God, EPD, what are all these different acronyms? <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. But slowly you learn. But again, the more challenging pit, bit, in my opinion, mm-hmm. is that human capital element. How do you work with so many different personalities, so many different groups, each of which have a different goal at the company? Bringing those people together and almost kind of project managing everything so that things get done. That was the element that I had not experienced at my prior jobs because at at a fund or at an investment bank, you know, people tend to have project tend to be on projects where you have the same goal. And unfortunately, a lot of the people in those roles have very similar backgrounds. So on one hand, you don't have maybe quite as much diversity, but on the other hand, you kind of get each other immediately because you have very similar backgrounds. At a startup, all of that goes out the window for the better, but you have to adjust and adapt to that. Yeah, and and I... Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help, with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform, with an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets, so you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. I love that point, uh, Kathy, you know, the point on diversity. And, and, you know, I'm a huge believer in it. And I know you are as well in terms of pushing the envelope and and really challenging ourselves and challenging our biases. But what's not talked about enough is exactly what you brought up there, which is actually managing diversity is hard because everyone has a different opinion uh, and you are meant to come to the best solution. But managing that whole dynamic can be challenging. and, And we've heard a lot of the rise and falls and the rise again of different startups. I mean, I'm, I finished hashing Twitter. I don't know if you read that book uh, about the story of Twitter and, and the founders just 
fighting about everything in terms of even just thinking about the direction. So I want to ask you, um, you're, and now you're an investor again uh, in Sapphire and investing into companies just like Gusto. What was it in your time in Gusto um, that you've experienced that has changed the way that you're approaching investing? What has impacted your, your view on investing today? Yeah, the number one thing is entrepreneur empathy, right? Mm. Um, I joined Gusto. I was probably employee 200, right? So not an early employee. It was already a sizable company with a lot of backing. But I still remember the roller coaster of emotions that could happen on a monthly or weekly or even daily basis. Your whole world revolves around payroll and Gusto and Gusto's customers. And when things go wrong and you think about a customer potentially not getting their payroll, their employees getting their payroll on time, that feeling is the worst feeling in the world. And when you're so married to your role, to that company, I can only imagine as a founder how difficult it is to talk to investors, sometimes who maybe think they know more about your industry than the actual entrepreneur when that's your entire life, right? So I always step back and think, oh my gosh, this person has spent the last two, three, four, five, maybe even more years of their life really grinding it out, going through those ups and down emotions constantly. And whenever you talk to them about their business, you have to remember that, that they're the expert Um, But also sometimes remember that because they're so close to the company and the product and their customers, there are ways that you as an investor who has the wider scope can add value to them. It's all about adding value to the entrepreneur and developing an authentic relationship with that person. So that's an absolutely number one thing I, I learned while working at Gusto. And what about the diversity point? I mean, you were front and center uh, when they were scaling, like you said, right from 200 to 400. How did you see your leaders um, navigate and bring out the best in, in their people? And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about the many executive leaders that are tuning in here today. Uh, we had actually Brian Elliott from Slack who spoke about the future of work and how this actually opens up opportunities, but also is challenging. So I want to hear a little bit on your thoughts on what you've learned on managing diversity and coming to the best outcome? It's very, very challenging, Sarah, as you mentioned. I was so fortunate to work at a company that from day one cared deeply about diversity. And that is Gusto. And that is also my current job, Sapphire Ventures. Um, I'll just share some anecdotes about Gusto, right? Gusto has a interview process, which I think is super unique and awesome called the watermelon process. So you go through kind of the normal process, but one person during the process is kind of the cultural interviewer, right? That person is just to make sure that you, whoever's interviewing fits the cultural values of gusto. And actually I'll share kind of why it's called the watermelon. I don't know if they yeah, love to name, hear that, <laughs> but I think it's so cute. So when Josh, Eddie, and Tomer, the, the uh, co-founders of Gusto, first started the business, they, like many a startup, founded it in someone's basically apartment, right? So it was like a right. you know, couple people in an apartment. And I think they made the first offer to an engineer. And they wanted to give him something 
as a, you know, a nice gesture, like, oh, welcome to the team. Here's like a small token of how excited we are. And they had nothing at the time but a watermelon. <laughs> so they gifted him a watermelon and that stuck, right? And, you know, Gusto right. has other small things they do, like they're, it's a shoeless company. So in the office, no one wears any shoes. All the shoes go on a, a bookshelf before you enter. And it's really meant to foster a feeling of comfort, a feeling like you're at home with family. And that's really kind of the vibe that Gusto uh, brings out. But going back to the point of diversity, it is kind of baked into the interview process to make sure that besides just hitting kind of the... Um, traditional interview aspects uh, in terms of can this person kind of do the tasks that are required for this role, they care deeply about making sure that person, whoever it is, is aligned with the broader cultural values of the company, which I think is really important. But you have to go one step further, as we all know, right? There's unconscious biases everywhere. And Gusto has made a very strong point that at the candidate funnel level. So before even it gets to interviews, just making sure we have enough diverse candidates in the pipeline that have a chance of making it down to kind of the interview process and so on. So they care a lot about that. And then part two is, okay, great. You have a diverse workforce. Everyone has different backgrounds, different genders, sexual orientations, different education backgrounds. How do you manage such a diverse workforce. And that is the part that I don't think anyone has a great answer on. You know, at Gusto, again, um, there were a lot of small teams and cross-team collaboration. It's very much a democratic um, culture, I would say, and make sure that all voices are heard. Sometimes things might take longer than you know, a different type of culture because you want to have all the voices heard. But if it's a cultural value to make sure that everyone who wants to speak gets a chance to speak. That's just one of the side effects of that, right? Right. So being intentional in, in, in it, and, and I like the uh, point on uh, making sure your pipeline is diverse before you narrow it down. Because again, you know, um, this point on culture, sometimes I struggle with it because I see a lot of, and, and you know, there's a lot of big t- tech companies speak about the power of their culture. But when you look a little bit deeper, sometimes it can um, go to a different direction of, you're still wanting a certain fit and therefore you don't actually uh, include, you know, uh, the diversity that you're seeking for, because uh, like many investors say to their pitching uh, founders and, and uh, you know, people that are looking for their support, you're not a fit right now. What does that mean? You know, let's unpack that, right? And and Sarah, I will have to, I'll say, you know, um, I read a, a book a while ago. I think it was a very popular book. So maybe many people in the audience have also read it. It was called The Secret Power of Introverts. I think that was the title of the book. And I don't consider myself a super introverted person, especially in a business setting. I always feel like I can speak my mind, especially at the places where I've been privileged enough to work. But the book made me realize that it's not just good enough to say, hey, anyone have anything to say and leave it open? For some folks who are more introverted, you have to take a different approach to actually pull. They might have great insights, but they might not be comfortable sharing those insights in a big kind of town hall-like setting. 
you might have to chat with them one by one or find another mechanism to have their voices heard. It's not one size fits all. And I think that's something that's super important to remember when we talk about diversity and making diversity work in the workplace. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And now I want to turn to take a, a different tact here and talk a little bit about the work that you do. So really want to hear, you know, your approach in Sapphire. And uh, I spoke to uh, someone close to you in, in preparing for this session with you. And she said um, very succinctly when I asked her, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say Kathy, Kathy Gao? And she said, this girl um, is extremely substantive. She does her homework. And she has very, very independent views. And this is where I, I dive a little bit deeper and, and want to hear your thoughts on this. And when I ask, what do you mean by independent? She says, you know, in the world of venture, uh, and I see this a lot, we tend to follow a lot. We tend to be excited by the trend of the moment, the flavor of the month. Uh, but it's important to, to have conviction in what you believe in. And I want to talk a little bit about this independence that you have and that conviction that you have uh, in the work that you do. How do you think you arrived at that um, level of conviction, especially as a new partner in, in Sapphire? That's a great question, Sarah. I think for me, when I think about how I can be effective as a venture capitalist, as a partner at Sapphire Ventures, it kind of boils down to, am I able to identify the potential companies of consequence that will be built in the future? And am I able to win that deal for Sapphire, right? And on both of those points, it is my belief that conviction is the most important ingredient. Because if you have conviction, you'll have the guts to fight for that deal that you believe in, fight for that team you believe in. And we know today the markets are crazy. Um, you know, Valuations in both the private and public markets are sky high. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you need to stretch to win the deal. And if you don't have that conviction, I feel like that's when people start to quaffle, maybe. But when you do have conviction, you feel a lot more comfortable and confident saying, even if we have to stretch a little bit to win this deal, I know that based on the work that I've done, not based on gut alone, but based on the work that I've done, that this company is attractive, is going to be the winner in this very large and attractive market. So I think it's very hard to be an investor these days without conviction, unless you have a very different model and a massive fund where it's more of a shotgun approach. But that's not really me and that's not really Sapphire. We're very much conviction-based investors. And talk to me a little bit about the convictions that you now have. I mean, um, you know, in the opening, we talked about how in 2019, um, Enterprise was something like thirty uh, billion uh, in terms of how much they've raised, and that number dropped slightly a little bit in the pandemic. But still, you know, it's about twenty nine point five. It's it's still about thirty billion. What are you excited about in the future of enterprise here? There's so much that's going on. You know, we've taken steps forward and steps back. But what are you excited about, and what's your conviction for the future here? Oh my gosh, there's so much. Uh, I love that question because there's so many things I think there is to be excited about. I'll talk to you guys about a couple of them. Um, the first one is really around the future of healthcare. I've written about this. I talk constantly about this. Pre-pandemic, I really felt like healthcare was, technology in healthcare, to be more specific, was a tale of two cities. 
where on one hand, you have things like CRISPR and a bunch of other kind of crazy science fiction level technologies that are being created and implemented. And on the other hand, when you go to the doctor, most people still have to fill out a clipboard. You know, right. why, why is that? I just thought that was completely insane, especially when you consider that the healthcare industry, when you talk about TAM and healthcare, you're no longer talking about billions, right? You're talking about trillions. It's a massive, massive market in the U.S. alone. COVID has done something very, very interesting to technological adoption in healthcare. A lot of change, and this is based on my opinion and, and some of the work that I've done, uh, a big blocker to change in terms of technological adoption in healthcare historically has been inertia right? It's just how things have been done before. We see that even a little bit in payroll when I saw that at Gusto, right? You could talk to a potential Gusto customer and you say, Gusto can make your life way easier, but the person who might be using ADP or one of the other incumbent solutions is like, well, sure, but I've been doing this for the past five years. I kind of know how to do this. It might take me many hours every week, but this is how I kind of do things and I'm just going to stick with that. COVID was a forcing function. It was so powerful because it impacted the entire industry at the same time, right? So buyers of technology and healthcare, and there's so many different stakeholders that we have to think about. That's why it's so complex. They were all essentially forced to look for technologies that would bridge that gap. So the obvious example that we can talk about is telehealth, right? Utilization of telehealth was way sub 1% before COVID. Very, very few people use telehealth. I would ask anyone in the audience to remember, you know, pre-2020, did you ever use telehealth for any of your appointments, right? You maybe like Hardly. through one, yeah, right? It was very, very rare. And that changed dramatically uh, after COVID. And certain pockets uh, especially had even higher growth rates, right? Especially mental health for kind of the obvious reason. You saw the rise of many very exciting companies who were delivering mental health in a digital way that had never been really done before prior to that. Um, so that's why I'm super excited about healthcare. I think that a lot of the technologies are not new, right? Telehealth technology has been around for decades. It's nothing new, but the adoption and the utilization is finally turning a corner. And of course, there's regulatory tailwinds too to kind of help with the um, the, the payer side of things. Uh, at, at Sapphire, we were lucky enough to invest in Livongo back in 2016. We are investors in Fitbit and 23andMe. And most recently, my partner Dave Hartwig and I invested in an amazing company called Medible, which is providing software to power decentralized clinical trials. What that means is instead of having to go to an academic facility, if you are a clinical trial participant, now you can do a lot of that at home, right? And you can see how that benefits people who are part potentially participants. Instead of having to drive two hours to an academic facility once a month, you can now do it in your own home. That opens up the potential participants for a trial, which means that there's a greater shot of efficacy potentially, right? Because you're opening up that population and things get done faster. This is an example of one of these trends where 
it just makes so much sense. And the new way is so much superior than the old way that I don't think anyone can imagine the trend going backwards. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And before we go into the other trends, I know you were also passionate about the future of work and I've definitely read a lot of your writing there. But I want to, you know, dive deeper into this example of Madable and how you uh, use your conviction that we talked about a little bit uh, earlier to come to this decision on um, backing someone like Madable. And, and what I'm speaking to here is sort of what what is the criteria? What have you seen to be patterns of success uh, that you've seen in your founders to be absolutely crucial, especially at this stage of growth? Yeah, that's a great question, Sarah. Um, Metable is a very interesting kind of case study to talk about when it comes to conviction, because I first heard about the company and met with the company pre-COVID. I think it was November of 2019. And the company had built this incredible platform, right? End-to-end cloud-based platform. Um, But they were still in the early innings of commercialization because of that inertia factor that I talked about earlier. So we didn't end up getting there in that initial conversation. Fast forward to, I believe it was probably August or September 2020, we got another opportunity to talk to Michelle and Medible. And holy smokes, I mean, the company had grown. I think the company ended up growing 4X in 2020, they had signed very large contracts and it just felt like Medable in many ways was in the right place at the right time with the right team. And when I think about all the different components I just mentioned, right? Um, Timing, timing tied into market, product and team. These are all very important things that a venture capitalist needs to diligence, right? Making sure that the product A works, but you think the product works the best out of all the competition. And you do that by things like talking to customers and other industry experts. That's probably the most easy way, but also diving deeper into the actual nuts and bolts of the tech platform. That's very important. The market, I don't think anyone could deny, was on the up and up for many, many very exciting trends. But the third big thing is a team. Hmm. For any stage of company, team is important, but it's especially important for early stage teams for obvious reasons, right? And team is probably the one thing that is most difficult to diligence. How do you figure out if someone is going to become a great entrepreneur and has the ability to build a billion dollar plus company, especially today when the time frames to decide on a deal are getting shorter and shorter. They're compressed. Compressed. Completely compressed. Yeah. Completely compressed. So I believe in kind of two things, right? I believe in um, trying to spend as much time as possible with the founder prior to investment Um, sometimes it's not possible. I always like to travel when it's safe and possible to do so, to meet someone face-to-face and get their vibe. Try to Mm. figure out what makes them tick, what motivates them. You know, peel back the layer a little bit more. And I try to share the same about myself so they understand what drives me and what motivates me. With Bettable in particular, um, the CEO and co-founder, Michelle Longmire, is an absolutely incredible woman. She was a college athlete. She's feisty. She has this drive to win. And she's so charismatic and warm and open that we really felt like 
Michelle, plus the team, the amazing team she hired around her was the right team to back in the space. Interesting. So to the extent that you can speak about this uh, a little bit more, um, you know, oftentimes we from the outside see a lot of successes. And especially now, it's almost every other day that you get a notification of yet another IPO, a SPAC. There's so much excitement in venture capital right now. And, uh, you know, the birth of unicorn founders. I want to understand a little bit in terms of your sort of decision making process and um, sort of what you said there about Michelle backing that billion dollar founder. What was it about Michelle as you got to know her beyond, you know, sort of on the surface the drive that told you uh, she's got the fundamentals here? So if you don't mind, I'll keep it broad and share my thoughts yeah. on some of the characteristics that I think a good CEO, good captain of the ship um, may have, right? And you think about the role of the CEO, what is that role really, right? In my head, and it's different for every company and different for every person, I understand that. But in my mind, the CEO is someone who can hire the best people, have the vision to see that, hey, this person would be amazing for this role, but also a person that enables the rest of the team to achieve their full potential, right? And in order to do that, that person needs several crucial Again, in my opinion, character traits, right? That person needs to be highly empathetic. They need to be a people person, I think, right? You have to understand who is working at your company, where are their strengths and weaknesses. You don't have to do this with everyone, of course, but for your core lieutenants, you need to have a good read on which person would be best in which role. And that applies to hiring new talent, but also to your existing talent. Because sometimes maybe a person is stuck in a suboptimal role and they can really thrive and shine in another role, right? Mm. The second part of that is really more strategic. So I talked about kind of the EQ human element. The second part is more strategic and execution. This is when you get into the nitty gritty. Can this person sell? Can this person execute? Meaning, can they? will they say, hey, we need to hire... X, Y, and Z roles, and they actually go out and do it, is this person the type of person who says, okay, um, here are two different directions that the company can go in in the next year and two different areas that we can invest? Can they accurately analyze the opportunity for each of those two investments and make the right choice? And this is where it becomes very gray. It's not black and white. And it's, yeah. some, it's an area that I'm personally constantly learning. This is why I love working with entrepreneurs and hearing their stories and seeing how they work. That is That area is very gray, but you need yeah. to have some sort of, I don't even know how to describe it, almost like a executive functioning layer where you can organize people in the right way, but also see one layer beyond that strategically. Yeah, so I, I think uh, the best way that I've heard this described is the, the elusive triple threat of a leader, which is experience, um, that's helpful, execution, and also vision. So sort of taking it that, le- that level up as you were speaking. And now I want to turn to the other part that I know you're excited about as well, the future of work. Uh, you know, that's been a lot of talk about it. Your co-founder spoke about how Zoom and many other uh software solutions like Zoom are essentially becoming platforms. Uh, and there are a lot of tag-alongs there. What, what are you thinking about the future of work here in terms of collaboration, efficiency? And uh, frankly, also, what, what are you worried about? Yeah. 
future of work is, I think, a very, very broad term. But I think that's okay because there's so many different exciting micro trends that kind of fall under the future of work, right? Including, I would say, gusto. Um, But here are a couple of things that I'm personally super excited about. I'm very excited about technologies that help map people and their strengths and weaknesses and personalities to the right role, not only at new companies, but within existing organizations. Digital transformation is a catchphrase I'm sure we've all heard many, many times, and we're probably all sick of this term, but it's a thing. It's happening, right? Mm -hmm. And big companies are going to either have to find huge numbers of people to fill kind of new roles, or they can look at their existing employees and say, hey, you know, Sarah really loves, even though her job is this, she really has shown affinity for X, Y, and Z. Why don't we give her a shot, right? Or Joe really loves X, Y, and Z. Why don't we put him here and see how he does? I think there's so much potential to unlock people's skills and passions and roles that they previously didn't think they were a fit for. Just from, from a personal perspective, that gets me really, really excited because I'm passionate about making sure people have a chance to fulfill kind of their highest professional goals. And I think too often we get siloed into these career tracks and when people don't need to be siloed, right? They can do so much more. So that's one area that I'm super excited about. And then two is one that you, you touched on already, Sarah, which is collaboration. There are so many ways to collaborate, you know, shout out to one of our portfolio companies, monday.com, which has really made collaboration across teams so much easier But, you know, with Zoom, with kind of these digital whiteboarding companies like Miro and Mural, the possibilities are endless. And why it's really exciting is if we find a way to collaborate seamlessly in a virtual way, that means, and I know this is debatable, but we don't really have to be physically nearby our colleagues for most of the year, right? And what a beautiful thought. People can live wherever they want and get the same amount of work done at the same level of collaboration or even better and unlock a lot of a lot more interaction. So it's an area that we're watching very, very closely. Um, I think there's been a lot of interesting companies that have already popped up. I 100% agree with Jay that Zoom is going to be a platform like Salesforce and Amazon. I, I bet you we're going to see a lot of companies who are going to pop up and be very successful built completely on Zoom. Yeah. And and what about, I mean, you know, you sort of touched up, up upon it in the future of healthcare and, and data is uh, sort of the oil and everything that we do these days, right? Um, what are you thinking here, especially given your scope as well in, in looking at uh, businesses that, that interface with data and data analysis? Uh, what, what are your thoughts here as we continue to increasingly become digitized, connected, but at the same time, I mean, I was just tuning into the news earlier. So many cybersecurity attacks are on the rise and, and uh, it really is a cause for concern here. How are you thinking about the space of data? I'm so glad you brought that up, Sarah. One thing I'd like to say half jokingly about data, you know, that phrase, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. Yeah. I sometimes feel like that's true with data because now mm-hmm. the quantity of data that is being created at in organizations has grown massively, it's become a challenge to harness that data 
munge it, cleanse it, and make it useful, right? And um, we've seen businesses that really enable companies to better use first-party data grow explosively across multiple categories. Uh, think things like Databricks and Cloudera for, on a core tool side, um, Plaid and LiveRamp on the middleware side, um, of course, Tableaus and Lookers of the world. Looker was an ex-Sapphire portfolio company on the BI analytics, Snowflake on data processing, Splunk on log processing, and many more. I think we're going to see an entire industry, um, and you know, the industry is already there. We're going to see more and more companies pop up that, again, help companies leverage their own first-party data and make use of it. I actually invested in a company called SafeGraph earlier this year that is focused on providing the most accurate data on point of interest. So this is on data on any physical location. SafeGraph provides the cleanest data directly to data scientists so that they can link that data with their own first-party data and, again, glean insights from it, which I think is really, really um, becoming more challenging but so important. Yeah. Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jiu-jitsu-loving entrepreneur and co-founder of Rocketbook. He talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a Shark Tank flop but ended with a $50 million exit. You know that's our jam. Listen to it, Talking Too Loud, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, so how, how do you think about, you know, as you're continuing to invest in uh, important spaces, um, you know, to the point of privacy here, I mean, uh, there's a lot of te- talk about big tech, right? I mean, Zuckerberg's been under fire uh, for some time now about the abuses of um, such a large platform. As the investor backing some of these entities, I mean, what you're speaking about there with uh, the point of interest, it, you know, it reminds me a lot of entity resolution that people use even in national security instances, right, where you, you have a person of interest and you want to identify all these things. Um, and as we're coming out from the pandemic, hopefully, fingers crossed with vaccinations on the rise and, you know, bringing in the U.S.-Asia comparison here, I'm, you know, I'm from Malaysia where um, it's unfortunately in, in a little bit of a bad space right now where they're trying to increase the numbers of vaccinations, but also thinking about how do we track these people, right? Mm-hmm. How do we ensure uh, that the people that have been vaccinated are the ones that are, you know, as we're starting to do now, really unmasked, right? In the U.S., there's a lot of talk of freedom and privacy, and yet we have this tension of there there needs to be this use of data as the investor backing these companies that are harnessing and and cleansing these data points about uh, people that matter, you know, all of us. How how do you think about this? And, And what's the line that you draw here as you invest in these powerful companies? That's a great question, Sarah, and it's an interesting one. I am Chinese. I was born in China, and you think about China and their data policy is obviously very different from the view shared by most Americans around data privacy. Um, I have a couple thoughts on this topic, right? I think it is a today an impossible question to answer on what how, how do we find that balance between 
using this data that we have available to drive forward important um, you know, agenda items for our society as a whole versus breaching that level of personal privacy around their data. Um, when I'm looking at a specific company, I think there's a couple things you can look for, right? You can look for the fact that they have actual policies around data privacy. It's never a good sign if you ask them a question about it and they have no clue. Company, mm-hmm. Great companies who deal with sensitive data all have very strong policies on what is okay and what is not okay in their terms of service. Number two, you have to make sure that, you know, why, why is data so um, important and, and scary if you lose it, right? You don't want it to be stolen and you don't want to be used by a competitor or, you know, p- potentially worse. So you want to make sure that the companies that you back take security infosec very, very seriously, that they've hired people who have security backgrounds and they are very, very maniacal almost from a cybersecurity cleanliness perspective. Those are two easy things that you can check that gives you comfort that the the people who are running the company are thinking about it in the right way. And, you know, zooming out a little bit more, I think there's a lot of interesting companies out there who are trying to solve this problem by putting, by empowering the consumer, right? I'll give you two examples. Um, There's a company called All Stripes, and none of these are Sapphire portfolio companies, by the way. Um, There's a company called All Stripes, and there's a company called Picnic Health. They are solving the problem of um, healthcare data not being interoperable because of um, things like PHI restrictions by saying, you solve the problem if the consumer, who is the ultimate owner of that data, raises his or her hand and says, please share my data, right? You solve that problem. That's empowering the consumer. There's other companies, I'm forgetting the names now, where um, you can literally make money by selling your web traffic data to advertisers and other companies. So I think that's a very interesting way to kind of go around this problem. Um, who knows how how big this uh the solution can be, but I think there are many, many interesting ways to kind of solve the problem in the future. Yeah, and and I love that, Kathy. Um, the fact that you're as an investor asking the hard questions, uh, which you know we we could have saved a lot of situations there of investors. I think uh, I was with a group of LPs today talking about just stakeholder activism, right? And and the fact that you know in the seat that you are, especially with the bigger checks that you're writing. You have real leverage here, and it's about putting conviction. And uh, you know, I, I I love investors that um, really take that next step of you know, it's not just about the profits you're you know the carry and the fees that you're going to give me, but it's about how do we build for enduring change and something that actually helps society and doesn't put us um, you know in in a little bit of a social dilemma here of where we're next with technology because it can be both an equalizing and a dividing thing, right? Technology. That's absolutely right, Sarah. It's more than the money. It's about the legacy. That's why at Sapphire Ventures, we have a huge ESG initiative where we Mm. do many things, where we, you know, help push our portfolio companies to think about diversity at, uh, at the company. But we also think about the rippling impacts of some of our portfolio companies on society as a whole. It's a big area of importance to us. Right. Well, that gives me a very good segue, uh, Kathy, to the final segment. Uh, one that I love, billion dollar questions, where I ask you 
eight quick questions. Um, and you tell me the first thing that comes to mind. And, you know, talking about enduring change there and talking about uh, building your legacy. The first question for you, Kathy, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. Uh, what does success mean to you? So to me, Sarah, the word success really means continuous realization of what you want, right? Mm -hmm. And that really implies that success is not static and it's very different for each individual. Um, So I think for me, uh, you know, being successful means you always have to work at it. And I think if I think about a person who I admire greatly, who I think of as successful, I have to say Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm, Uh, That's a good one. I mean, um, don't even have to explain. Ruth Bader, RBG is, is one that we hold uh, high legend. up. Legend, total legend. Number two, common misconception about you. What do people misperceive about you, Kathy? That's interesting. So I, I, I grew up in uh, Houston, Texas. You know, Texas, mm-hmm. everyone's super warm and outgoing. You say hi to strangers. Then went on the East Coast for 10 years and I was so shell-shocked because, you know, if you've ever been on the East Coast, United States, New York, Boston, Philly, people don't say hi to strangers on the street, right? It's much more reserved towards strangers. Like, what's wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) And then I moved back, then I moved to California. And I think uh, a common misperception when I first moved back was that I was more reserved or I was like, Mm. you know, more serious. And I was like, no, guys, I'm not. I had to wait for my Texas self to reemerge. Love it. Favorite tool hack for productivity? I don't know if this is a great tool or hack, but one thing I do that's highly effective for myself is I write everything down. I still have notes from years ago that I refer back to. And the reason why I think it helps with productivity is I'm constantly thinking about 50 different things at once and I forget about them. If you write everything down, I try to, at the end of the week, organize all the things I did and make a very concise list of things I need to accomplish in the next week. Right. Love that one. And I, I too am a notebook person. So, you know, it feels different when you're typing versus actually physically writing with a pen. I totally agree. (laughs) Best advice you've been given. The best advice I've been given, and I can't remember from who this was given to me by is don't sweat the things you can't control. You know, I think as people, we all have a bit of, neuroses and always thinking about, oh, like, did this person, is this person upset at me? Or maybe I did the wrong thing here. If it's happened in the past, you can't do anything about it. So just forget it. You only have so much mental capacity. Just focus on things that you can actually affect and change. Absolutely. And now a different tack to this. What advice do you give people, but you have trouble following through yourself? And I think one that I I always love to give people is don't let fear stop you from doing something that you'll later regret, right? Mm. In concept, it's great. You have one life to live. It's short. You should do everything that you feel like you want to do. And sometimes I don't follow my own advice, right? Because sometimes things are uncomfortable or I get shy or I get embarrassed and I don't do something I actually want to do. So I always have to remind myself, like, what is there to lose? And I think that one gets easier as you get older. You start to care about things less. Yeah, I think that's true a lot. Uh, Best investment, it could be your time. It could be a resource that you've made in the last uh, 12 to 18 months. 
Yeah. And um, I don't mean a company here, by the way. So it's something personal. So I'm going to expand your timeline a little bit because the last 12 to 18 months has, has been, uh, you know, okay. Fair enough. Stuck at home. Pandemic bound. <laughs> pandemic bound. I think two really important things is, um, investing the time and money to travel and also to do volunteer work. I think in our daily lives, we tend to get very pigeonholed and into our little, our little corner of the world. And it's very, very easy to lose perspective, which is why I love traveling. I love going to places where it's a little bit off the beaten path, see a very different style of living. And the same thing goes with volunteer work, right? You know, go volunteer at a food bank, go tutor some middle school or high school kids. Giving you that perspective, I think, gives you more clarity in your own life and also makes your own life feel richer. Love that. Biggest fear? My biggest fear, oh man, I have so many fears, Sarah, so many fears. Gotta choose one, the biggest one. (laughs) I think the biggest fear is kind of back to that question you asked me about advice I give to other people and sometimes I don't take myself. My biggest fear is if I wake up on any random day, but especially if I'm, you know, old and I think, oh man, like I really wish I could have done that, but I was too scared or nervous to do so. And now I regret it because that's something that you can actually change. It was something very like feasible that you can change. You didn't do it. So again, it's in your control and you didn't do it. And that'd be very upsetting for me. So that's my biggest fear. Love that. And finally, vision for a Kathy Gao in the next five to 10 years. I hope I'm still doing what I'm doing, which is um, finding amazing entrepreneurs, building amazing companies, developing authentic relationships with them, really leading by my core principles in life and investing of passion and conviction and hustle and hard work, right? Um, I think the next 10 years for Enterprise SaaS is going to be phenomenal. I think we're just scratching the surface of that cloud explosion and playing a small part in that is just so exciting to me. Love that. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for spending this power hour with us where we really went through, I think, as much as we can on everything that is Kathy from the three prongs of your investment from future of wealth, healthcare to your biggest fear. And I really appreciate you being so candid, right? Because we all uh, learn not from the glitzy stories that we hear, but really about, you know, some of the hard decisions that you've even had to make for yourself. So thank you, Kathy, so much for that. And thank you all for joining us today. Be sure to share, like, and subscribe. And Kathy, I'll hope to see you very soon. Yes, thank you so much, Sarah. Bye, everyone. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials at Sarah Chen Global to get the latest news on the show. I'm Sarah Chen, and you've been listening to Billion Dollar Moves.